grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's text is a short one. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15a. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Amen. Amen. Because that sermon, uh, because the scripture is so short, I actually wanted to uh, sneak in a famous quote that had a tremendous impact on me. Uh, so if you can please forgive me, I'm actually going to read off my phone. I'm actually going to read a quote from Charles Darwin during the time we would usually read scripture. Hopefully the lightning will not hit me through the roof. Forgive me. This is Charles Darwin, the father of evolution. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding out general laws from large collections of facts. But why this should have caused the atrophy of this other of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. He's saying that his brain has become so full of facts and thinking and logic that he's lost his ability to enjoy the higher tastes. Something part of his brain has withered and died and doesn't work anymore. What do you guys think those higher tastes are? I, I would definitely say it probably involves that. Okay. And he says, And if I had to live my life again, I would have made a part... I, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once every week, for perhaps the parts of my brain now atrophied would have thus been kept active through use. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature and I would say to the spiritual character as well. All right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for writing our names in your book of life. Thank you for wanting us to be part of your one big family in the heavens and the earth, dear God, and thank you that you are the author and finisher of our faith, because you write the best story for our lives and for the whole universe. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, I don't mean to harp on it again too much, but as we all know, the Baptist Church in America and Christianity in general is in a significant decline in membership. As sincere believers age out and die, and the, the, the kids and grandkids of those members aren't filling the pews and replacing the ranks. Uh, if, they're kids in, if they're Christians at all, they're most certainly not Southern Baptists. From a brutally uh, realistic free marketplace perspective, the bottom line is there is no longer any demand for the uniquely Baptist product we are selling. Now, these younger generations are desperate to believe in something. It's just not the Baptist faith and message that they find attractive. Instead, Islam, 
Antifa, CRT, and other Marxist fronts in general are taking over the hearts and minds of these young generations. And now they seem to believe that overthrowing the traditional American way of life is a bare minimum necessary step to make our nation and thus the world a better place. Now, it would be easy to scoff at these ridiculously naive younger generations. Uh, you know, before you try to destroy a flawed system, we always got to wonder how much worse the thing is we're going to replace it with. Uh, I was in the Middle East, and there's lots of tyranny and oppression there, way worse than we have here. Uh, and uh, I was like, and people were very, very scared of any political or governmental changes. And I was like, why is that? And they're like, well, better the devil you know than the new devil you don't know. You can try to move in the system with the devil you know. Uh, but it would be easy to scoff at these ridiculously naive younger generations for rejecting our message. But that's not going to make this church grow or make America great again. And I believe that though some blame does lie with the younger generation for their audaciously un-American disinterest in our product, but I think maybe we should be asking ourselves, is there a problem with the product itself? Or at least how we market it. What if we become like Darwin here? What if we're mythologically bankrupt? What if we're not peddling any big unifying stories anymore that capture the hearts of these young people and equip and enable them to make sense of their confusing lives, their confusing world, and our nation's place in it? You're probably wondering what this has to do with our text for today. First Peter here, sorry, Peter here in his first letter <laughs> presumes we have a hope for which we are able to give account to everyone who asks. And it's kind of hard to have a hope without expecting a happy ending of some kind. And for there to be a happy ending, or even just a hope for a better future, we need to have a story, a big story, like Princess Bride big story big. But traditionally, we Baptists haven't done stories very well. Uh, and let's be honest, stories can make people unchristian. Who's ever seen stories make someone unchristian before? They started reading the wrong thing and then they went off the rails. No one's ever seen that? No one's ever? Yeah, that's why you gotta be careful what you read. Or who's ever seen someone start listening to certain type of music and then go off the rails? Yeah, or, or a movie. A movie's changed, completely changed. They say that the movie Philadelphia completely changed this nation's opinion about AIDS victims. They did, completely changed it, yes. Art is powerful, uh, and historically, Baptists just aren't really strong on the arts in general or the media or stories. Uh, we're more just the facts, ma'am, sort of people. We prefer plain truth, sound doctrine, and a simple Roman's road to our eternal security. Uh, we find our answers in Genesis, and we look to God's word for rules to live by. Agreed? I mean, we've had our pristine theology straight for centuries, and the Christian world was a mess until we came up, until we showed up and fixed everything. Can I agree? I mean, the theologically speaking, at least. Uh, and 
why would we want to imagine that someone would want to destabilize all this and upset our theological apple carts with some news with some new stories or some different stories that could lead people to God knows where? Who would want that? People under 50 would want that. Uh, now I agree. Uh, you're right. A story can be a dangerous thing because you can get a hundred times more theology or more belief. You can get a hundred times more ideas inside a person where they believe them and internalize them from a good story than you ever can from a powerful Billy Graham evangelical sermon or from a, or from a good, good Christian book about why you need to believe or evidence for a verdict. If evidence for a verdict were a story instead of a book, it would be far more successful than it already was because stories are what change hearts and minds. I mean, the Civil War started because of a story, okay? People have been railing against slavery since the Constitution was written. I mean, Thomas Jefferson actually took out parts of the Declaration of Independence that were trashing Britain for encouraging and enabling and causing slavery in the colonies because of political reasons. He wrote, he, he cut out paragraphs condemning slavery and condemning the British hand in it. You know, slavery had been a problem for a long time, but it was Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's cabin that set everything off and put, drove this nation past the point of no return. No, stories are dangerous. I know from experience. Uh, towards the end of my freshman year in college, I do believe, I'm not trying to mess up anyone's theology about eternal security there, uh, but I do believe I was actually fallen headlong into apostasy for at least six months there. Uh, and looking back, if you want to ask me what led me astray, I would have to say it was the stories Novels, novels I was reading with dangerous ideas that almost made sense. It was a book series, a fictional, novel, a fictional series, like one book after the other, that met me right where I was with a false gospel of existential humanism, and it completely rewrote my young worldview without me even noticing. Noticing anything really except that now my eyes were open to the flawed and incomplete morality that I had been raised with. The questions this author asked about life and the world and the unseen realm and the charges it leveled against traditional American religiosity as I knew it were so subtly pernicious that after three years of wrestling with questions that neither myself nor my church had answers to, I apostatized. The teaching I was receiving in the pulpit just seemed irrelevant. It was neither asking nor answering these big questions. Uh, I was well on my road to perdition, and were it not for an act of God and his grace, I can honestly say I would probably now be dead in jail, or worse, a lifelong activist with no productive work history to speak of. The horror. be on TV right now in one of those videos. <laughs> a picket line or something. <laughs> Sorry, it was very upsetting. Nonetheless, uh, despite, despite the slings and arrows of outrageous teenage misfortune you know, that only a 19-year-old can have, uh, what really pushed me over the edge to apostatize in the face of you know, really important teenage adversity were these well-crafted pseudo-existential fictional narratives. And they were, all, they were asking all the big questions I had. 
And while not providing very good answers of their own, they were a great story. And providing, and at least they were providing an answer, while at the same time ingeniously exposing the inadequacy of the modern American Christian one. I mean, thanks to God's grace, I go back and read those stories that I found so life-giving, and they're just dead and hollow inside now. And I laugh because I can't believe that any of these inherently flawed arguments held any weight in my understanding, or that any of these half-truths somehow taken, these half-truths taken out of context, how did these ever influence my worldview and make me deny my faith? But, you know, hindsight is twenty-twenty, and you're only 19 and omniscient once. The problem is when you're 19 and omniscient, you can still apostatize and turn your back on God and go straight to hell. And what grieves me now about how simply I was led astray is how simply it would have been for my youth pastor to have inoculated me against any of these false narratives by just having a compelling gospel narrative of his own for me to believe in. But as a young American Christian growing up in the late 20th century, the Christians around me, the conservative evangelicals, were ill-equipped to communicate a gospel narrative powerful enough for me to internalize the Christian worldview deeply, at least deeply enough for me to cling to it after being exposed to different other stories. Listen, our gospel worldview is amazing, and it's like the best medicine on the planet. But how do you get medicine inside someone? You need a syringe. You need an injection. You need a needle. These stories that are changing everyone's minds in America, these stories are the needle. They're the way the story's getting inside. And if we don't have a needle, no one's going to get the medicine. And the reason my, there, there was no needle I mean, it's because the religious tradition I had grown up with was mythologically bankrupt. And so because it was mythologically bankrupt, I was vulnerable to any other mythology that came around that I just stumbled upon. My religious tradition, our religious tradition, gave me no big story for me to hang my life on, no fool idealistic crusade for me to join. My church didn't even have lightsabers. Instead, it just had a thoroughly boring Christian life of church attendance, good grades, social conformity, while making a sincere effort not to drink or smoke or look at dirty magazines. Too much. Uh, and so with no better options, no more exciting meaning to my life, I sold my birthright in Christ for a bowl of mainstream secular humanism hidden within some really good stories, some really good intellectual fiction. Now, I am kind of embarrassed about the level of lowbrow fiction that led me astray, and I'm not even going to name the author or the genre for fear you'll think less of me. I mean, looking back, I wish I could have apostatized from reading something really smart like Charles Darwin, you know, Origin of Species or maybe James G. Frazier's The Golden Bough, you know, I mean, if it's good enough to keep C.S. Lewis out of heaven, it's good enough for me, right? Uh, but no I, delied, no, I denied the Lord that bought me for some mainstream paperback existential sophistry on sale at Walmart. Ironically, and by the grace of God, 
He, he does have a sense of humor. Though it was the false gospel packaged in fiction that led me astray, it was the true gospel packaged in the epic myth of J.A.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that brought me back into the community of faith as a 20-year-old young man. Through all my wandering astray in college and my apostatizing, during which I never picked up a Bible, I still read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings voraciously. Aragorn was real to me even when the gospel wasn't. Sorry. While my church's boring, demythologized narratives of productive citizenry couldn't withstand the fiery darts of 20th century fiction, J.A.R. Tolkien's timeless tale of the invisible unseen war was a lighthouse built on a rock solid enough, solid enough to weather the storm and guide me back home to a faith in the one true God of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can imagine my crisis and confusion when two weeks after I had finally trod the long road back to repentance in a small Baptocostal church in my college town, a pastor demanded that I throw away my beloved copy of Lord of the Rings because of all its ungodly magic and wizardry. In their place, I was given a copy of Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, which had a fraction of the biblical literacy of Lord of the Rings and a completely unscriptural, unrealistic portrayal of how the unseen realm actually works. But I couldn't bring myself to get rid of my beloved Lord of the Rings. Ask my wife, I still have it on the bookcase, lots of it, many copies that I always compulsively buy at great length, whether she wants me to or not. And so like any good Baptist back then, I secretly hid my copy of Lord of the Rings in the closet with my beer and just felt guilty about it. Now, please don't blame this pastor. I don't. I understand why he was thinking I was a fresh soul coming out of God knows what. And he had a very common point of view that we all had back then. Secular stories were and are dangerous because they have worldviews in them that might be opposed to our scriptural worldview. Agreed? And he'd seen, like we all had, people get a hold of some music or some story or some movie. And that's how Katy Perry went off the rail. She heard some secular music at a sleepover, and then her now she's Katy Perry instead of a nice, sweet Christian girl. You know, we'd all seen secular media of one kind or another lead people astray. And uh, so he's like, "You got to get rid of the story because our stories can't compete." You know, our Christian fiction is kind of lame. You know, if we have Christian stories at all, they're kind of lame. And this pastor, on some level, instinctually knew that we 20th century American Christians have no strong mythological narrative worth advertising, no one big story capable of supporting and enlivening our worldview and making it attractive to people, making them internalize it, making them take the medicine. And so his only hope, or our only hope, to survive as a church and as a pastor in the face of these competing worldviews with their awesome stories and all that devil music with its great beat, was to isolate ourselves, for him to isolate himself and counsel me to isolate myself from any of those dangerous secular ideas and their storylines. I mean, that's what we did with Dungeons and Dragons, right? Who remembers the 1980s Dungeons and Dragons scare? Oh, yeah. And don't get me wrong. 
Dungeons and Dragons was and is a neo-pagan revival. But what made it so attractive? It wasn't just a game. It was a fully developed world. I mean, it was a world with a story. And it was a great story with a mythology and a worldview that explained everything in this world and in the Unseen Realm as well. And let's be honest, when you played that game with your friends, you could be your best or worst version of yourself and grab your sword and go out, sword and go out on some fool idealistic crusade. In the D&D realm, when you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, you always had a place in this world, useful work to do, and hope for a better future. Or so I've heard. And you're certainly, as a teenager, not getting any of that in a Baptist youth group, I guarantee it. And let's be honest, as we grow up and try to get out of youth group and teen angst, what big narratives does our American worldview historically have to compete with playing Dungeons and Dragons, much less anti-fascism or something? Uh, our distinctively American story starts with Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, after that, what else is there besides not smoking, not drinking, and voting Republican? I mean, what is our big life story about? I mean, outside of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, abolitionism, manifest destiny, defeating Hitler, opposing and opposing communism, the Christian faith in America no longer has any good stories like those capable of fending off competing worldviews. It's, it's 2021. We don't, none of that stuff seems relevant anymore if the young kids even know about it. And if they know about it, it's probably all twisted and weird anyway. But so we have no good stories capable of fending off these competing worldviews. And these competing worldviews, whether whatever flavor of neo-Marxism they are or just Dungeons and Dragons, they'll both send you to hell. They'll both send a kid to hell if he believes in them. And those have well-developed mythologies of redemption. It's set in this earth and our, their, their false redemption. And, you know, we, they're not, it's not going to end as redemptively and utopianly as we think. That's why Venezuela is Venezuela right now. But they don't know that. The story, it's a really good story if you didn't know any better. And our faith is just a glorified worldview with no story. And we're just a set of propositional truths, belief statements, lifestyle choices, and or political positions that we just intellectually salute. This is what we believe. And then we're done with our Christian duty for the day. And this, I don't know how we got there, but it's too easy to slip into that. And we're just a worldview without the story. And in the younger generation, they're not going to go for that. And don't get me wrong, I love our worldview. I agree with it. I think we have one of the most biblically illiterate worldviews out there. But just because we're right doesn't mean being right is good enough to move our product to the younger marketplace because our wonderful worldview is, isn't wedded to a big story that people can identify with. And these younger people, they really need a big story. They will do anything to be part of a big story to make sense of themselves and the world around them. Even if that, they'll even go protest during COVID in the heat of summer to be part of something. They are so desperate for a cause to believe in, like sheep without a shepherd. They will drink up whatever ditch water is out there that they can find for their thirsty souls. They will self-destructively grab onto any stupid worldview if it has a compelling story for them to build their life upon. 
Trust me, I've done it myself. And our evangelical Christian worldview, no matter how good it is, has effectively become built on sand in the eyes of this younger generation who feel cut adrift and lost in a meaningless world, and they don't find any stable meaning here. And until that changes, we will never be able to compete against all these neo-Marxist worldviews that are built on the solid rock, the seemingly solid rock, of redemptive mythologies like anti-fascism or CRT. And we're never going to be able to provide them with some stability until we get into our Bibles and find our own story and get our own mythology straight. We can't just dissect this to data mine facts or find some chicken soup for our own soul to get us through the day. That's not what it's about. Our worldview, no, our faith needs a story again. And the sad reality is that we conservative evangelicals don't do story time very well. And that's not really our fault because a good, a good story just wasn't as important to us or even our parents or our grandparents. It was a different time in 1890. Stories weren't as important. And, you know, since the Enlightenment, we are so hung up on truth and facts, like Charles Darwin is, that we Baptists have done everything we can to demythologize or de-supernaturalize every passage of Scripture we can find so that our atheist friends don't find our logical and well-reasoned arguments for faith silly, you know? Like, it's almost too much to ask them to believe in a virgin birth and an incarnation and a resurrection. So if we're just going to cut the supernatural shenanigans off right there, maybe we can slip that in to our scientist chemistry teaching t t like colleague or something. And that's what we did. We want our doctrine to be logical. And we don't want anything weird in our Bibles because we need our Bibles to make good, scientific, rational sense. We have to make our Bibles say something we can accept because as good Baptists, we have to accept whatever it says. Now, before you think I'm being unfair, how many times have you ever heard a pastor or teacher explaining the scientific reasons behind how the 10 plagues of Egypt have really happened? Who's ever heard that, girl? Let's be honest. Who's ever heard that? Who's ever heard, well, you see, the frogs died, and that made the plagues, and that made the gnats grow. Okay, get it? The rotting. See, the river turned to blood, and that killed the fish, which caused the frogs to spawn. You, never, no, you guys never heard this growing up? Oh, it must have been an 80s thing. Okay. Why do we need to take a story written 4,000 years ago where a man can throw his stick down and it magically turned into a snake. Why do we need that story to be buttressed by science? Unless science is important to us, unless we want to unspookify everything, unless we want to uh, get rid of any cool stories. And so I bring this up because sometimes I fear that the modern American church for the last 50 years has become like the Ephesian church in Revelation. We've gotten so distracted doing all those good things and they were good things, temp well, maybe not temperance, but abol abolitionism was a good thing. Revival was a good thing. Opposing Hitler was a good thing. Resisting communism, very good thing. You listening, kids? Very good thing. Okay, those were good things. But somehow, I wonder uh, if we somehow lost our first love doing all these good things. 
I mean, growing up, I was simply taught to view the Bible as a receptacle and treasury of scientific facts, spiritual truths, a Roman's road to salvation that only mattered after I died. It didn't really help me here, which is a get-out-of-hell-free card, and then amazingly decent morality that allowed human flourishing in our great nation. And it seemed like almost that's all we really wanted from it. And that's all we got. We got this excellent worldview that if everybody believes it and obeys it and acts right, everyone will socioeconomically succeed in life, liberty, and happiness. And we'll all have a nice white, licket, white picket fence in Lake Wobegon where the women are smart, the men are good looking, and all the children will be above average. And that's all we wanted. That's all we got. Well, at least from 1950 to 1980. Well, if we were white. We got it. And nowadays, we are so mad because not everyone's following this great morality anymore. And it's jacking up the nice ecosystem for everybody. Well, for the rest of us good citizens, at least. And yet, our parents and grandparents, sorry, our children and grandchildren need something to believe in. And when they come to church, they are not looking to receive a Christian worldview. They, want, they are not looking for how they can get out to Lake Wobegon, okay? They want to hear a story, a story of God. They are hungry for it. And if they come to our church to hear God's story for one hour a week and they don't get it, they're going to go home empty thinking, the Bible and God has nothing for them. Which is why, in conclusion, I think it's vitally important that we need to rethink this book we say we base our lives on and reevaluate its purpose in our lives. Is this book just a bunch of excellent, God-given rules to live by for moral and ethical society to flourish, like America used to be? Or is this a spiritually true book written to reveal facts about God and his plan for salvation and at least flawless in the matters of faith and doctrine? Is it that too? Or is it an inerrant and infallible, scientifically correct word of God that never makes any false factual statements in error due to its having been written 5,000 years ago by people who thought a flat earth was made in six days? These are the big questions we've been arguing and fighting and kicking people out of church over for the past decades. Is answers in Genesis, are the answers in Genesis really all we need to know? Because none of these three things I mentioned have a story to them. They're just arguing about what is true. And I submit to you in closing today that our individual answers to any of those three questions are irrelevant because they never go beyond systematizing and organizing biblical content into a coherent, safe, systemic worldview to live by and a set of principles and facts to believe in in order to not go to hell by simply ascribing intellectual agreement and assent. The sad reality is you can be like Charles Darwin and intellectually agree with your head. You, you, you can have ground out all the facts presented in Scripture and still have a cold heart that does not love Jesus and has not acted loyalty to him in any way. And even if the Bible, and, and even if the questions we ask and answer, like those three I just did, do matter, they don't matter to anyone under the age of 50. 
and treating the Bible the ways I just mentioned and teaching it that way is not a product that's going to be purchased by the younger generations who are going to hell in a handbasket right now, if you excuse me saying it, okay? And it's sad because without this book, we don't know right from wrong. And this book was written by a living God. It's not just a series of unfortunate historical events, spiritual truths, and God forbid scientific facts. This book is a work of literature with a cohesive and compelling story that answers all the big questions these young people are asking and have been asking in church and have never been given an answer to, which is why they've been leaving for decades. It's why I left once. If we're gonna grow as a church, if we're gonna thrive as a denomination, if we're going to survive as a nation, then we need to change our understanding of God's word and about how to read it and what the author's purpose was. We need to see where we fit in this legendary promise plan of God and his plan to rule and reign and redeem the entire universe by making us one big family. That is our hope. So my challenge for you today is to learn to read this book mythologically. Read it like it's a big story that unites everything in the universe and has a meaning and a purpose that tells you how to understand God, how to understand the world, and how to understand your own journey in it. Because that's how God wrote it to the original audience, and that's how he wants you to understand it. God did not give you a brain in your head to analyze cause and effect and process facts in order to critically evaluate them as true and as quickly as accurately as possible, yada, yada, yada. No, God gave you a brain in your head so you can experience himself and others in loving relationship. And those relationships only matter if you're seeing yourself inside the story, inside your own video game. Okay? We don't just need to understand this book scientifically, devotionally, ethically, or theologically. More importantly, we need to understand it mythologically so that it can provide meaning and even hopes for our lives because we find ourselves living out what we read in the pages and the legendary epic it tells. Hope doesn't just come from God-given facts and rules. Hope comes from knowing you're in the middle of a story that's written by a loving author and finisher of our faith who is somehow going to pull out a happy ending out of all this mess no matter how dark things are looking now. Hope comes from knowing and seeing that you have a part to play in the, ag plant, in the aggressive redemption we call the kingdom of God. It's a military offensive of hope. This is why we need to understand the mythology of our personal journey and then be able to tell it well so that we actually have people coming up and asking us to give an account of the hope we have so that Peter's words in 1 Peter 3.15 are relevant because that's what's going to change the hearts and minds of these people that don't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus today, you need to. If it's never been advertised to you in a way that's made it clear that it's your life purpose to live inside God's story for your life, well, you, now you know. So now the burden's on you, and you are invited down to this altar to repent at home in your seats and accept God's big story for your life. It may end in the, Colosseum, in, in the Colosseum with some lions eating you in persecution, but that's just how one chapter ends. The whole thing ends with you living and reigning as God's child forever in heaven. And as some of you guys have forgotten that, 
here, you're welcome to come down and receive prayer or repentance as well. Or if someone here has never received the gospel, please come down and receive him. He is calling you, and he has a plan for your life. Go and serve the Lord.